3: I'm Sarah Eisen and welcome to this CNBC special, Your Money 2022 Global Edition.
4: In a world dramatically altered by the pandemic, the market is struggling for footing. Combating cross currents of everything from inflation to invasion, tensions are at a breaking point across the globe. Tonight, we tackle an economic world reacting to war with updates on the very latest from Ukraine and Russia, how a changing European landscape impacts your portfolio, and how this violent chess game puts China back in focus. With spiking oil and sanctions on the table, the world is watching a critical international energy summit. We have the latest. And as the U.S. government proceeds with caution, Corporate America tries its hand at diplomacy as the payment powerhouses pull the plug on Russia. This is Your Money 2022 Global Edition.
3: Good evening. It's good to have you with us tonight. Jim Cramer is off a painful Monday on the street. All the major averages selling off the Nasdaq now officially in a bear market, meaning 20% down from its all-time highs. The S&P 500 down nearly 3 percent into the close and the Dow finishing red this Monday down nearly 800 points. Investors are growing increasingly concerned with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Let's get straight to Kayla Taushy in Washington with the latest on what we know. Kayla.
5: Sarah, another day, another failed ceasefire negotiation with Russia holding to its demands that Ukraine cede control of separatist regions and Crimea and drop its push to join NATO. As Russian ground forces remain near but stalled outside major Ukrainian cities, a senior U.S. defense official says Russia has ramped up use of long-range fire like rockets and missiles, more than 625 used in the last 12 days. Now talk to punish Russia further, lawmakers in Washington proposing to revoke its membership at the World Trade Organization, allow tariffs on Russian goods and ban Russian oil, which stood at about percent of U.S. crude imports last year. News of the potential oil ban backed by the White House sent shockwaves through the markets before it was even announced. The rationale for telegraphing such a move days in advance is so companies can take action now. Banks have stopped financing these transactions. Shippers won't take the cargo. And CNBC has learned there's a view within the Biden administration that perhaps this so-called self-sanctioning captures the ban itself with just a mild Move up in prices expected once the ban is made official. Today, Press Secretary Jen Saki confirmed that delegations of top U.S. officials have discussed the global oil supply with Iran, Venezuela, and Saudi Arabia as part of multi pronged negotiations on other issues. Saki, though, said there are no current plans for President Biden to travel to Saudi Arabia to push the kingdom for higher output himself. Sarah?
3: Kayla, has the administration changed its tune at all with respect to oil production in this country? It's always been about green energy solutions. And I know that's a priority for the Biden administration. But now at a time where we desperately need to flood the market with oil, especially the U.S., could be pretty helpful. Are they lending support to the energy industry yet?
5: Well, that messaging from the administration, Sarah, has taken on two fronts. On the one, the White House has been uh, very keen to note that the oil producers are not even drilling on the full capacity of land available to them as it is. So they've been criticizing uh, some of these major companies for not maximizing their own production, which was stalled or pulled back during the pandemic. On the other front, they've been keen to say that they need solutions for the near-term, the medium-term, and the long-term. And to that end, they acknowledge that renewable and green energy uh, issues and strategies are part of those middle and longer termed prongs. But today, something very interesting, Sarah. We heard the White House say that it's going to be evaluating many options, including options to increase domestic production. We'll n- need to hear more from the White House on exactly what they plan to do domestically to shore our production here.
3: Yeah, investors certainly curious about that. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Taush in Washington. Crude oil prices spiking on all of this to a 13 year high. Help setting a downbeat tone for the broader market. We saw it in gold prices breaking through 2000 highest level since back in august 2020 as investors rush into assets they perceive as safer so the question investors are asking now how far can stocks bend before breaking cnbc senior markets commentator mike santoli joins us now that is a very santoli (laughs) question to ask but but seriously now that we're in a bear market in the nasdaq how far can we go down here
1: well Probably can't withstand too much more incremental pressure from here, but I still think we're in what I would call the bend zone. And what does that mean? Well, the S&P 500 is down 12.5% from its record high. The rest of the world equity markets collectively down about 18.5% have held up better. The S&P 500 finished on a closing low today for this pullback, but still 2% above its Intraday low from February of 24th, that was the day of the invasion, and that was before oil had its last 30% spike. So in other words, the market is trying to kind of build up a little bit of resistance to each of these macro moves. Now, some of the signs that you might be building up a cushion in terms of investor sentiment and valuation the S&P 500 valuation, based on earnings expected this year, it's about as low as it was at the January low of this year when we bounced really hard in January 24th. Not to say it's cheap, but it's as low as it's been in a few years uh, or a couple of years. And then sentiment, investor sentiment is looking like it's getting to a pessimistic extreme that sometimes precedes a little bit of a comeback. I would argue, though, um, that really this Area of the market, we finished at 4,200 in the S&P. We have about 100 points of downside before people start to reevaluate and say it's feeling a little bit more like a cyclical bear market as opposed to just a prolonged correction.
3: A lot of the strategists we talk to who say to buy stocks or that stocks are going to recover later in the year say it doesn't look like the U.S. is going into recession. But that is something we're monitoring with, with oil prices skyrocketing, food prices going up, the Fed about to start raising interest rates. I know we're watching the bond market, the credit market. Where are you looking for signs of whether the market is telling us that we may be going into recession? It's
1: interesting. The bond market is is not really flashing that signal in absolute terms in terms of the level of yields, right? There hasn't been this rush into Treasuries, long-term Treasuries that would have compressed the yields. But uh, I do think that within the stock market, I mean, consumer cyclical stocks, anything dependent on the consumer... Has been for sale in a heavy way uh, for weeks right now. So I think the way to read it is, uh, it's registering a heightened risk than we thought before of a recession, or at least enough of a slowdown that it really is going to jeopardize corporate earnings. So that's what we have to monitor here uh, from a from a you know forward going basis. It's not to say we have an outright flashing red light that recession's on the horizon but that it's a lot more, uh, you know, in sight than it was a few months ago.
3: Yeah, and the dreaded stagflation, slower growth right. and higher so inflation. Right, so just slow growth Problems.
1: plus inflation, yeah. yeah.
3: Mike, thank you. Mike Santoli tonight. Geopolitical risks weighing heavily on the averages, with volatility top of mind for investors. What could investors expect as the year moves forward? Let's bring in CFRA's chief investment strategist, Sam Stovall, and Rick McNeil of Longview Global, also a CNBC contributor, Good evening, gentlemen. DeWardwick, Europe went into a bear market. They're expected to feel the pain a lot worse, the ripple effect from from Russia and Ukraine because of the proximity. Euro's at a five year low. Are we next? Is the U.S. market and the U.S. economy next?
6: Well, I think uh, what we're seeing now is how resilient our economy is, but I think we do have to be uh, concerned given uh, what we're seeing. But I think there are some bright stories. Uh, for investors with respect to uh, Europe, Uh, Sarah. If you look at the defense sector, for example, uh, Europe has had a paradigm shift in thinking around investing in this sector, uh, particularly Germany. So there's a lot of, in my view, tailwind and and long-term opportunities in the defense sector in Europe. But uh, let's hope that the U.S. is far more resilient uh, in terms of of its market than, than we're seeing in Europe.
3: Do you think that's been priced into Wardwick to to U.S. defense stocks, which have fared better? But if we really are seeing a paradigm shift, can that last for several years, decades even?
6: I think for, for European uh, stocks, for sure, on the defense side, these have been underinvested in Germany for a very long time for historical reasons. But I think you're starting to see uh, that the Europeans, particularly the Germans, believe that we have to invest both at home in terms of our defense needs but also look to export some of our defense technologies to other places, to some friendly or countries. So I do think there is some tailwind on the European uh, defense stock side.
3: Mm-hmm. Sam, what, what about you? It, it felt like today—you know—today was the worst day for stocks in 17 months, on top of what we've already been through. It had a feeling of economic weakness, even though we saw Treasury yields higher. And a lot of stocks that have a lot of exposure to Europe in particular got slammed. PVH, a retailer, Ralph Lauren, Tapestry. It feels like investors were looking at that exposure of business to Europe and really pushing the sell signal. How would you characterize where where we are after such a deep sell-off?
7: Well, I think the first question that investors have is, was this the washout day, the capitulation day? And I checked with our uh, analysts over at Lowry Research, our CFRA's technical analysis arm, and they said that while selling pressure has been the strongest today that it's been in several months, it is not at their 90 percent level that they would regard as a a washout period, and that therefore we probably could have some more downside pressure to go, even though it felt like uh, everybody was throwing out uh, the baby with the bathwater.
3: What about technical levels, Sam? What are you watching?
7: Well, I'm looking at about 3,800 on the S&P 500. Uh, That equates to a Fibonacci retracement level. Also, if you do believe in head and shoulders patterns, uh, that would imply what the decline would be based on the neckline versus how high we went in early January. And that would equate to just around a 20 percent decline for the S&P 500. A similar retracement for the Dow would bring it to around a minus minus 19 percent or about a 30,000 uh, level.
3: So more pain ahead to Wardrick. How are you reevaluating global growth this year in light of all of these issues?
6: Well, one of the areas, of course, I'm I'm watching is, is what uh, we're going to have out of China. We just had the National People's Congress uh, take place over the weekend. It seems like there will be more fiscal and monetary actions out of China. That could be a potential uh, growth spot. But there are also a lot of downside risks in looking to China as the growth engine in 2022, Sarah.
3: What about, what does that do, Sam, for earnings expectations? Like they keep coming well, down. Well, earnings,
6: expect, earnings
7: expectations right now certainly are dramatically lower for 2022 compared with 2021. 47% is what S&P Capital IQ shows for last year, but only about 6.6% growth for this year. And I think that the further that we go with higher energy prices, obviously those numbers will come down. Uh, There's an old adage that for every 10 dollars uh increase in the price of oil that goes on for an extended period takes away 20 basis points of real gdp growth so the longer we have higher energy prices the more of a drag it's going to have on the economy and obviously on earnings
3: dewardrick sam thank you for joining us tonight appreciate the commentary
7: my my pleasure coming up on the
3: show thank you why one expert says europe is facing an existential crisis And how that could impact the foreign exchange markets, which have seen a lot of action lately. And crude prices surging again as the U.S. and its allies consider a ban on buying Russian oil. We'll break down what that means. That's all ahead when CNBC's special Your Money 2022 continues.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Visibility at Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney, just go to Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com/slash/MadMoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: Welcome back and good evening. While the war in Ukraine is rattling U.S. markets, it's having a much bigger impact in Europe. The Vanguard Europe ETF, one of the biggest tracking European stocks down 10% in one week. And the question is, will the impact on growth be long-lasting even after the war ends? Here to dig deeper into that question, where things stand in European markets, is Bob Pisani. Bob.
8: Sarah, this is a very, very difficult time for European investors. Broad European indexes lost 10% of their value last week. Most of them are at 15-month lows right now. European stocks have been hit with a double whammy, down in January on concerns that central banks there will raise interest rates, and now down in February and March on fears that the Ukrainian crisis will have long-lasting growth implications for Europe. As a result, large parts of the European market have lost nearly a quarter of their value this year. So, for example, Siemens, this is a big global industrial, down 28%. SAP, a big global software company, down 25%. Volkswagen, big global automaker, down 24%. And there's concern that even the rich aren't going to be in a mood to spend. LVMH, which is the world's largest luxury good maker, for example, also down 22%. The crisis comes at a very delicate time for European stocks which have underperformed the United States for many years. The S&P 500, for example, is up 210% in the past decade. The European markets, a measly, 22%. After briefly outperforming in early January, now the European stock market has collapsed again. Earnings in the first quarter were expected to be up 12% in Europe. That's a fairly modest increase after years of modest increases in earnings last year for example it was nearly 50 percent increase but investors no longer believe those estimates and they're now acting like the analysts are very soon going to begin cutting the estimates on a wholesale basis back to you sarah
3: Bob bapasani bob thank you our next guest says that europe is facing an existential crisis in the wake of the russia ukraine conflict and that european energy infrastructure will have to fundamentally be revamped. So what will that mean for the markets and what should you have exposure to right now? Joining us to break it all down is Jens Nordvig, Exante Data founder and CEO. Jens, it's great to have you here.
9: Thanks for having me. How should we
3: think about Europe's future and, and this vulnerability here from a national security perspective of its heavy dependence for Russian oil and gas?
10: Yeah, this is an extremely challenging time for Europe. Uh, And it's not so much because uh, Europe export a lot to to Russia, like exports to Russia as percent of GDP is about 1%. So that shock is probably manageable. But the problem is that about 40% of certain energy supplies come from Russia, and it is going to be very, very difficult to replace those quickly. And, And even just before we went on air here today, there was a headline from a Russian spokesperson saying that they might cut those supplies, right? So that could be a major, major disruption to the European economy uh, because it's going to be hard to keep factories running and and all the other energy users are going to be potentially in trouble if we don't have that Russian gas. That's the reason why European markets are down so much in the last two weeks.
3: What can they do about it? There was a report circulating that that Europe is mapping out a path to cut its— Dependence on Russia dramatically—I think eighty percent, according to the for the European Commission—is that possible? Yes. And and how long would that take?
10: I think the eighty percent is is a kind of goal, right? So uh, clearly, policymakers in Europe and and the citizens across European countries would like to get this exposure down. This dependence on Russia is not something that is is very nice to have in a situation like you have here with a border just a uh, wall, literally right next to the EU. So um, there's going to be a whole host of initiatives. Some of those initiatives are going to be reducing demand. Uh, Japan Mm -hmm. went through a similar situation when they had the the nuclear accident and they had to cut demand. And then there's going to be a lot of efforts to substitute, right? So uh, LNG potentially from the US is going to be a one source substitution. Uh, European debate is very focused on renewable energies, right? So speeding up that process. But none of these initiatives is something you can do from one day to the other, or even from one year to another. So they're going to do as much as they can this year, but it's going to end up being a multi-year process.
3: So as I understand it, your new firm, you're crunching all this data and and providing institutional clients with the analysis and recommendations. A lot of money has flooded out of the euro and European stocks. Do you, do you stick with that trend or do you see any potential buying opportunities just because a lot of this has been factored in?
10: Yeah, so literally since since the night where we, we saw the first shells come into uh, Ukrainian territory, uh, we've been saying that this is a big problem for duration, like uh, essentially global buying is probably going to reset lower. And we've said that European equities uh, were going to potentially be facing a very significant challenge. But Here we are and things are moving very, very fast, right? So if you compare how European stocks have performed versus US stocks over the last two weeks, it's literally the worst performance pretty much ever. Like you have to go back to the global financial crisis to find something similar, right? So a very big adjustment has taken place. uh, And from here, I think you have to look at, okay, are those energy supplies really going to be disrupted in a way where we're going to be facing sort of a, a quick recession in Europe? Or is this more the market having priced some probability of the worst worst case scenario and it's not going to transpire? I think that's going to set the tone for exit. But we've already had a very, very big move. Which is it? So, so <laughs> I I don't think the Russians are going to cut off the gas. I think they are threatening to do it as a kind of negotiating tactic now. now but uh, they, they I think they... Uh, are creating a lot of challenges for themselves. They will create an even bigger challenge for themselves if they cut off the gas. So I think most likely that gas will continue to flow and the Europeans will uh, sort of uh, manage to limit their dependence on it over time. But it's not going to be a binary cutoff that's going to hurt the European economy in a very, very dramatic way from one day to hmm. the other.
3: Sounds like you look. You might be looking to buy. Yeah. We know each other for a long time because of our, our forex backgrounds. You're you're a pro on foreign exchange. We have to talk about the crash of the currency happening right now. The Russian ruble, obviously being cut off from the global financial system, this currency was a dollar to set in the 70s at the beginning of the year. It's been in free fall. It's now dollar $1 to 140. So we're talking about like seven tenths of a cent if you took it, take it the other way to the U.S. dollar. What does that do to an economy? And and how how do you how do you come back from that?
10: When when you see your currency fall so sharply, uh, nobody want to want to really have savings in that currency. Right. So then you're going to face a situation uh, where people are going to get their money out if they can in the future. So now we're going to have persistent pressure on the ruble, Uh, almost irrespective of what policies are put in place, like we cannot reverse this shock that has already happened. And uh, we're going to have capital controls. And uh, once you have capital controls in in place, it's very hard to lift them. So this is a currency that is in in very serious trouble. And uh, even even the countries uh, uh, in Eastern Europe that uh, don't have the exact same situation as Russia, they are seeing big contagion effects like Poland, Hungary, other Eastern European countries, they are seeing very, very dramatic pressure on their currencies, some of the worst pressure I've seen in my entire career. So for those mm. uh, assets, this is some of the most dramatic I've seen for 20 years, really.
3: Is that an opportunity?
10: So I think, I think for the euro, uh, we've seen a pretty big move down now over the last couple of weeks. And if we compare to what we've seen around the euro crisis, like you and I both covered the euro crisis like 2010, 11, uh, 13, those years, uh, right now, we, we've seen a kind of weakness. So a reserve currency like the euro, if they can avoid having this dramatic disruption in the energy flow we spoke about a minute ago, probably the euro is going to start to see some degree of consolidation. It tends to be the case that you don't have the euro just going down 10 percent in a couple of weeks. That happens to emerging market currencies. That happens to certainly the ruble. But the euro is a currency, and it tends to be a much more stable creature, even in the face of these significant shocks you have.
3: Jens Nordvig, always good to have you. Nice to Thank see you. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. Your Money 2022 Global Edition continues right after a quick break.
4: Coming up. In the crosshairs of every aspect of the global crisis, energy is in focus. The most important voices in the space are gathered, and our Brian Sullivan is coming to us live from the pivotal meeting of minds. From sanctions to spiking prices, we have the latest as the world makes sense of the conundrum of the globe's dependence on Russian energy. And next, live from Beijing. The latest in the China chess game, we explore a tightrope act with dire consequences. As the payment powerhouses pull the plug on Russia, China is picking up the slack. What will the impact be as the superpowers are driven closer together? Your Money 2022 will be right back
2: NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving.
3: Welcome back to the CNBC special edition of Your Money 2022. Take a look at stock futures dipping after the S&P 500's worst day since October 2020 amid the Russia-Ukraine war and the spike in oil prices. Meanwhile, Russian banks are reportedly mulling over a move to turn to China in order to sidestep boycotts by Visa, MasterCard and more. CNBC's Eunice
11: Yun joins us now with more. Eunice. Sarah, China's top diplomat told reporters that Beijing's friendship with Moscow is rock solid. On the sidelines of a legislative session here, Foreign Minister Wang Yi said China has done some work to promote peace talks and mediation between Russia and Ukraine. However, he also criticized U.S. policy and said no matter how sinister the international situation is, China and Russia would push their strategic partnership forward. His comments come as Russian banks turn to China's payment systems after Visa and MasterCard cut ties. State-owned UnionPay is the main provider of card payments in China and operates in 180 countries and regions. And while other countries shun Russian oil, Chinese refiners are reportedly looking for workarounds to continue buying it. Sources tell Reuters refineries are paying with cash transfers up front to get around the state banks no longer offering letters of credit to purchase Russian crude. The Chinese have repeatedly said they oppose the Western sanctions on Russia and won't impose their own. Sarah? Eunice Yoon, Eunice,
3: thank you. For more, let's bring in Ishwar Prasad, senior professor of trade policy at Cornell University, also the former head of the IMF's China division. It's good to have you, Professor. To what extent is China bailing out Russia financially and economically?
9: Now, the reality is that much of the locus of international finance is still dominated by the West, but China can certainly help Russia to a significant extent, uh, in particular because um, uh, Russia does rely to a large extent of its export revenues on energy exports, and uh, China can certainly consume a good bit of those. But once you get past that, it's not obvious how much direct and immediate help China can provide. If you think about uh, the amount of Russian reserves held in Chinese renminbi the amount of money that uh, um, the uh, Russian central bank could get uh, from the Chinese central bank, that all adds up to about 150 billion dollars or so, which is about a quarter of the overall amount of foreign exchange reserves has, um, which um, uh, much of which Russia doesn't have access to right now. Plus, if you have payment giants like yeah. Visa and MasterCard pulling out of Russia, that cripples the domestic financial system as well. So China is now facing, uh, Russia is facing this double blow, both domestic and international. And at the margin, certainly China can help, but it's not going to be a good substitute for what the Western financial institutions and the Western dominated financial system could provide.
3: What does it mean for the US China relationship, economically, trade perspective, the fact that, that China is not following the US and Europe and is providing help to Russia?
9: Now, China also needs access to the dollar-dominated international financial system. So China is going about this in a very cautious way, not exposing its banks and financial institutions that benefit from that system. But, you know, the reality is that uh, um, even with the new administration office over the last year, we haven't seen any ratcheting down of tensions between the U.S. and China. If anything, they have ratcheted up uh, a little bit. And this is certainly going to, um, if not inflame those tensions, um, at least set them on edge. And certainly is going to make it very difficult to find a path uh, towards a more cordial relationship, at least on the economic front between the two countries, because both on the economic and geopolitical fronts, clearly this raises the stakes between both countries.
3: Well, well, just to throw something else in there, investors are also trying to figure out what it could mean for Taiwan and, and how it elevates any geopolitical risk there. What's your
11: take?
9: Now, certainly, I I think any um, rational investor would probably um, perceive uh, the medium-term risk of China moving into Taiwan as having increased, um, because certainly um, it has become clear that uh, Russia is vulnerable to some extent because of the financial sanctions. Uh, But if you think about uh, China's relative military power plus financial power, it's hard to see What sort of um, sanctions or other sort of economic pain um, that the U.S. could inflict on China that would anywhere near match what it has been able to inflict um, on Russia? So I'm sure the Russians are, what, uh, the Chinese are watching this very closely, but certainly they're also watching the fact that when uh, provoked, the West is able to come together in a way that maybe we would not have ant- anticipated a couple of weeks ago. So that might also change the, um, uh, the configuration a little bit uh, in terms of Beijing's calculations about what sort of response it can expect uh, from a united West, which we can certainly see can uh, pull itself together when the need arises.
3: So one of the fears out there now is that the alliance between China and Russia, the sanctions on the U.S. could lead to more diversification out of the U.S. dollar from, from major economic powers like that, putting their reserves elsewhere, lessening their dependence on the dollar. It sounds like you don't think that's a real threat. Is that right?
9: There are some changes coming. I mean, the dollar's role as a payment currency is going to decline. The importance of SWIFT is going to decline. Because there are technological advances uh, underway already that can bypass SWIFT as a messaging system. China's cross-border interbank payment system can ultimately act as a messaging system that makes it possible to get around the dollar as a payment currency. But my long-held view, and I think the data bear this out, is that for a reserve currency, you need not just um, the ability of your currency to function as a payment currency or um, a large economy and deep financial markets, but also an institutional structure an independent central bank, the rule of law, and uh, institutionalized system of checks and balances, all of which are necessary to maintain the trust of foreign investors. So as a reserve currency, I don't think the dollar is going to be seriously threatened, although certainly the renminbi is going to become a somewhat more important reserve currency, but it could take chunks out of the euro, the Japanese yen, but not so much the dollar.
3: It's also proving to be a safe safe place to be in the storm right now, up 7% in the last six months. Ishwar Prasad, thank you for joining us. Always good to talk to you. My pleasure. Coming up, markets are melting down. The Dow and the S&P having their worst day of the year. Well, WTI crude oil hit a 13-year high today. What it means for your money. And don't forget about the airlines coming off their worst week in two years at jet, as jet fuel prices soar on the back of oil prices. We'll look at how that will impact their reopening revival. It was supposed to be a big, a big time now coming out of Omicron. We're back in a moment. Airlines stocks slumping today as jet fuel prices surge to their highest level in more than 13 years. So what can we expect from these stocks going forward? And when will passengers start to feel the pain? Phil Abode joins us now. Phil.
12: Sarah, near term, the airline stocks are really going to be under pressure for some time until we get some relief in terms of jet fuel prices. 52-week lows for nearly every airline stock that's out there right now. Uh, and if you take a look at them, they were down close to double digits in many cases today. Jet fuel, I talked about why this is the driving force right now. You said it's at a 13-year high. I mean, you're looking at prices. We really last saw them at a sustained level at this uh, in this area. 2014. But you really have to go back to 2008 to see when they were this high for an extended period of time. So it brings up the question, what do you expect from the airlines in terms of travelers this summer? Will they have to pay the pain in terms of higher ticket prices? Well, it takes about three to four months before you see ticket increases filtered through. So right now, the airlines are still expecting strong domestic demand this summer. Transatlantic, is it going to rebound? The airline executives say for now they're still expecting strong transatlantic travel and corporate travel. That is slowly improving, but certainly not to the point that we saw it uh, pre-pandemic. All of this brings up the question that when you look at the airline stocks, and it's not just, uh, you know, the big four, it's also all of them. They're going to be under pressure as long as we see jet fuel prices where they are right now. And, Sarah, in terms of airfare increases, we will start to see them, but it's not going to make up the difference that we're seeing in the hike in jet fuel prices.
3: Well, I guess that's good. Something. Phil, Phil, thank you. You bet. It's not just the airlines feeling the pinch as travel tries to make a post pandemic comeback. The whole sector is facing uncertainty with geopolitical tensions and soaring fuel costs threatening the recovery. Let's bring in Patrick Scholz, Managing Director of Lodging and Leisure Equity Research at Truist Securities. Patrick, good evening. This was supposed to be a big recovery period coming out of, of Omicron for business travel, for international travel. How much does this war between Russia and Ukraine set that back?
13: Well, I would say for business travel, at least domestically, You know, so far, we haven't seen much of an impact uh, at all. You know, certainly upper end business travel, the higher end corporate business still, you know, is still severely depressed. But we have certainly in the last couple of months seen signs of life uh, with the mid-scale, excuse me, the um, small and mid-size businesses. So, you know, so far, I would say domestically not. We haven't seen it. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what tomorrow brings.
3: What about the spike in oil prices and, and what that tends to do to demand for travel and consumer spending, yeah. which was really robust?
13: Yeah, you know, it's gonna, every company out there is going to have a bit of a different exposure and a different impact. Um, you know certainly for corporate travel, it's never been a huge impact. That said there's not a lot of corporate travel go, high-end going on. On the opposite side, you know, unfortunately, where it is really going to hurt you the most, and I don't mean to come on here again and be a, a Debbie Downer about the cruise lines, but the cruise lines really get hit two ways. Um, one, especially with their mass market customer, uh, that hurts your pocketbook or your discretionary income. Um, and this is the average household income, you know, 70000 dollars that goes on a, a Carnival cruise lines, and then secondly. Uh, their second biggest uh, component of their cost is going to be fuel, and just as a matter of fact, I would say over the last three or four days, um, you know, back of the envelope, I would calculate that uh, a company like Norwegian, which is a high teen stock right now, has seen almost a six dollar per share uh, hit to their share price uh, from the from oil going from ninety to one twenty, assuming it stays at these levels. So. Really getting it, uh, you know, as they say, if the thunder doesn't get you, the lightning will. And unfortunately, cruise lines are sort of right in, the, in that uh, bad spot.
3: Airlines got slammed today. Hotels were down sharply. The subsector down 8%. There's also the question about exposure to Europe because their economy is feeling it worse and, and what that looks like for the industry. Where are the interesting investment opportunities in your sectors right now?
14: Well,
13: I, I would say on, on the long side, uh, stay domestic and stay higher end. Um, actually, I met with uh, a number of the vacation ownership companies last week and two that I'm very favorable on are gonna be the more higher end companies. These are companies that have average uh, household um, incomes of above $140,000 billion household net worth. And that's gonna be say Marriott Vacations at Vac. Also Hilton Grand HGB. (HGV), um, so definitely a more affluent customer. Less—it's not that any that everybody is immune from gas prices, but certainly a thousand-dollar hit to your household budget, going to mm-hmm. be less impactful. Um, these companies have very uh, minimal uh, international exposure uh, as well.
3: Patrick Scholz, thank you for joining us from Truist tonight.
13: Thank you so much.
3: Take a look at this. Tesla CEO Elon Musk has taken a surprising stance. He's recommending increasing oil production to ease prices. With prices soaring, we'll tackle what's next for the commodity after the unlikely backer of fossil fuels weighs in. We'll be right back. Welcome back to CNBC's special Your Money 2022 Global Edition. Top of mind for investors all over the world right now. All things energy. Let's turn now to our Brian Sullivan, who is live at Sarah Week, big energy conference. Brian, I can't imagine how, how relevant this conference is, talking to all these energy executives in the middle of this oil shock. What have you learned today?
15: Well, I think shock is the right word, Sarah. I mean, I think people here are indeed shocked. There's maybe shock and awe. This conference has been on the books for months. I mean, we scheduled that oil prices and gas prices were already on the rise but not to this level. Obviously Putin's war a couple of weeks ago changed the whole game. I mean, you showed Elon Musk tweet before the break saying, you know, these are extraordinary times, we need to produce more oil and gas. You're hearing that from the guy that makes the world's leading seller of electric cars, rather surprising. But I think that Elon Musk is a smart guy. He understands how much is made a derivative of oil and natural gas, whether it's plastics, aluminum, steels, the supply chain impact from the spike in oil and gas, Sarah, has been absolutely crazy. And I think Elon Musk knows that. The oil and gas CEOs that we have spoken to here today, and by the way, Will Tomorrow, John Hess, Occidental, Tellurian, and a number of others, they'll all tell you the same thing. This is not good for the industry. There's sort of this simplistic view that higher the price, the better it is for oil and gas companies. Not true because it creates demand destruction. And if you go back through history, Sarah, and we look at the Mm. four other times that we have seen this kind of price spike, 73, 79, 90, and 2008, all four were followed, maybe not because of, but were followed by a recession. So people here are not happy about these prices because they don't want to crush the economy at a time when we're just starting to come out of a two-year pandemic and to your earlier segment, people want to get on a plane and they want to get on a cruise ship and they want to have a good time And uh, obviously we can't because of a humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, because Vladimir Putin decided to start an unforgivable and and probably unwinnable war.
3: Well, certainly it would be healthier to have the demand instead of uh, the supply concerns. Brian, thank you. Brian Sullivan, great coverage today. And don't miss another CNBC special right here tomorrow night, The Oil Shock. Brian will be hosting and sitting down with some of the biggest players in the energy market tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, right here tonight, the list of companies limiting or halting services in Russia is growing, with the payment players making another move over the weekend. We'll find out what it means for the group. And stay tuned for the news with Shepard Smith beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC, top of the hour. We'll be right back. Welcome back to CNBC's special, Your Money 2022. The global financial system under extreme pressure as the Russia-Ukraine conflict intensifies, Visa and MasterCard sinking during today's session after news that they have blocked Russian banks from their networks. American Express and PayPal also suspending service in the country. What could this latest move mean for the payment sector and the broader global financial system? Joining us now to discuss Lisa Ellis, senior equity analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. Lisa, it's good to have you here. How much exposure do these companies really have to the region?
14: Uh, for Visa and MasterCard, it's 4% of revenues. And so that revenue is literally just gone um, as of later this week when they complete the suspension. Uh, for PayPal and American Express, it's much lower, like under 1%. So it's uh, much more nominal for those companies.
3: How difficult of a decision was this for them? I said For some com- companies and industries, it's, it's been easier to pull out of Russia completely. PNG, for instance, though, said it has to continue to supply Russians with hygiene products and basics. It just won't invest in that country. What what was the decision like here for these credit card companies?
14: Yeah, it was challenging. I mean, I spoke with both companies today after they made the decision yesterday. It's, they've operated in Russia for 25 years. Um, They have employees there, they have operations there. You know, they've supported the local economies. So it wasn't an easy decision. Um, However, it became evident over the weekend that they were sort of becoming a pawn, uh, you know, a um, push-pull player. And most likely they were going to be required to shut down one way or the other, either by Russia or through sanctions, elevating sanctions. So they decided to make the proactive decision to go ahead and suspend operations so that they could do it in an orderly fashion and unwind things in a much more orderly fashion.
3: So we saw it reflected in the stocks today, Lisa, but between that and the exposure to Europe, which is going to feel this a lot harder as far as the economic impact than, than the U.S., how much is factored already into these stocks
14: Yeah, I mean, all right, we're now starting, I think we're past just seeing the direct impact of the Russia suspension. And what we're starting to see impacting the stocks is an expectation that we'll see a broader macroeconomic slowdown. Um, These are, of course, very uh, names that are very much tied just to consumer spending and to the overall economy. And if we do see that recovery slow down, and particularly that recovery around travel and entertainment and discretionary spending, um, you know, that'll mean, you know, I think we're starting to see that reflected in the stocks because it'll just be another blow to these poor payments companies that have taken a beating over the last two years.
3: So given all these headwinds, which which ones, if any, do you like right now?
14: I mean, we still love Visa, MasterCard. This is a difficult period we have to to get through. Um, But, you know, aside, you know, putting that in, in the broader context, these are companies who will still benefit from the recovery coming off of the pandemic elsewhere in the world, where we still haven't seen the recovery in things like travel and discretionary spending, um, With prior to the pandemic was almost 25 percent of their revenues and is still down 20 30 percent that's the big reason why we still like the visa mastercard amexes of of you know um because we've still got that piece coming in but no no question that this situation and the severity of it um uh you know puts a damp you know damp dampers that a bit over the next you know few months at least until we see how this evolves
3: and in my final minute, Lisa, a geopolitical question, which, which is, how dependent are Russians, the Russian people, on these U.S. companies for their own financials, for their their financial system? What does pulling out of Russia do for them?
14: I mean, in the immediate term, the the vast majority of cards, debit and credit cards, so including debit cards, in Russia are issued on Visa and Mastercards networks, and so. It's actually a bit mm. unclear as of the end of this week. Many Russians may not be able to have functioning cards anymore. They're very dependent on these networks, which is why this was a difficult decision for the networks to make. Um, and so, you know, Russia is scrambling. They've got some domestic processing capability themselves. They're sort of scrambling to try to come up with an alternative. But, in the, you know, in the meantime, yeah. very quickly, Russians may literally have difficulty going yeah. to an ATM you know, buying anything online, for example, um, uh, you know, Lisa, hopefully, yeah.
3: No, no, we're, we're out of time, but but thank you for joining us tonight and for the insight. We appreciate it. Of course. It. Thanks, Sarah. thanks a lot. And that's going to do it for tonight, the CNBC special, Your Money 2022.
14: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery,